1: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we learn what two of the Colorado River's largest reservoirs can tell us about the river's health. Plus, we hear about the connection between how we heat our homes and our changing climate. It is odd that we burn fuel in our homes. Like, that's like what, you know, Fred Flintstone would be doing. And we head to a small Colorado town that's gearing up for its first Juneteenth celebration. That and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. As we head deeper into summer, drought conditions in the Colorado River Basin are the worst they've been on record, following decades of sustained hot and dry conditions across the region, all of which is of great concern to water users in the West. One way to judge the health of the river is to look at its two largest reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lake Mead. Later this year, Lake Powell in southern Utah is projected to hit its lowest level since the reservoir started filling in 1963. And Lake Mead, which is just outside Las Vegas, near the border between Nevada and Arizona, recently dropped to its lowest level since its development in the 1930s. KUNC's Luke Runyon has been on a road trip through the Colorado River Basin to hear from water experts and stakeholders and to see for himself how drought conditions are impacting the water supply for 40 million people in the southwest. That road trip has brought him to the country's largest reservoir, Lake Mead, where he joins us now. Hey, Luke. Hi, Henry. You're up at Lake Mead right now on what I bet is a real scorcher of a day. Uh, Give us a sense of what you're seeing. Yeah, I am up
2: here on top of Hoover Dam, which is the dam that holds back Lake Mead. The sun is beating down. I am just a few steps away from the the Art Deco installations that are here on top of the dam. I'm actually standing on a ledge that leads to one of these huge penstocks that dives deep underwater, uh, delivers water through the dam, creates uh, hydroelectric power and when you look over lake mead the first thing that you see is this stark white bathtub ring that's on the canyon walls and when you look down to the water it is a long way down Uh, this bathtub ring though really isn't that new Uh, lake mead has been struggling for basically the last 20 years and it's kind of the perfect encapsulation of the problem here and generally in the Colorado River Basin. This massive reservoir, which just happens to be the nation's largest human-made lake, is just not able to keep up with the demands as its supply of water keeps shrinking just recently the lake dropped to its lowest level since hoover dam was built in the 1930s right now it's projected to stay right around this level until next spring when it's forecast to take another historic nosedive
1: help us understand what factors are at play here when it comes to this historically low level and what is at the root of the issue
2: this really is fundamentally a supply and demand problem. Lake Mead and its sister reservoir upstream, Lake Powell, were built to buffer against dry years. The Colorado River is a wildly variable river in terms of its annual water supply, and you can have really high years and really low years, and this reservoir is supposed to balance all of that out by creating water storage. And Based on that buffer, we as a society in the Southwest have built up cities and agriculture and industry here in the desert. And those things are all really thirsty. It takes a lot of water to grow crops or build a city. And now what we're seeing is climate change is altering how the water cycle functions in this region. So the supply is shrinking we're getting lower river flows because of a lack of snowpack in the Rocky Mountains, really dry soils, and higher temperatures. And it would be less of a problem if we could easily just shrink our demand for water to match the declining supply. Uh, But when we've built systems that have promised water to so many people, they expect it and even depend on it for their lives and their livelihoods. And so it isn't as easy as just turning off the spigot to these thirsty cities and farms throughout the
1: desert Southwest. Well, honestly, Luke, things sound pretty dire. What's in store for the future of the Colorado River?
2: Yeah, I would say things are approaching a crisis level along the Colorado River, not just here at Lake Mead. Drought conditions are the worst they've been on record in the basin. Uh, Moisture levels in the ground in some parts of the region are record dry. Uh, Some of these other services that the big reservoirs provide uh, are in jeopardy. Uh, Lake Powell is upstream of Lake Mead and it's also going to hit a record low this year. It's a popular recreation area for boaters. It's managed by the National Park Service. And here in the next few months, uh, Lake Powell is also projected to drop to a point where its boat ramps won't be usable. I was at Lake Powell recently, met up with Matt Hoskins. He was visiting from Mead, Colorado, and he was there for a houseboat trip with his family.
3: Fortunately, the lake's you know doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, and uh, supplying
2: water downstream in in short years, which we've had a couple short decades now, it looks like. Um,
3: But uh, yeah, we hope to be able to continue boating and and recreating out here.
2: The loss of hydropower production at some of these dams is also a very real threat. Uh, Hydropower has already been diminished as the lakes drop, uh, but there is a point where no power could be produced
1: and so what are you hearing from officials about all of this are there any plans in motion or conversations happening to grapple with these low levels
2: well short of making it snow or rain the only thing we can do to keep the lake from dropping is to use less water from it Uh, the states that rely on water from lake mead formed an agreement in 2019 that's supposed to provide a guide or a roadmap to how arizona nevada california and mexico share the coming shortages, and as the lake drops, those states and Mexico will be curtailed in how much they can take from it. Uh, I spoke with Colby Pellegrino recently, she's with the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which provides water for the Las Vegas Valley. And she says her agency is putting a big emphasis on some aggressive conservation programs.
1: 90% of the water supply for this community today comes from Lake Mead. Um, so. Everyone in this community should be aware that Lake Mead is entering a shortage. Everyone in this community should be looking for ways that they can conserve water.
2: The state of Nevada just recently outlawed what they call non-functional turf in the Las Vegas area, and that's basically ornamental grass uh, in medians, next to sidewalks and business parks. And uh, over the next couple of years they'll be pulling out a lot of that grass.
1: Well, Luke, everything that we've talked about, you know, low levels in the reservoirs, water conservation agreements, how does all of this link back to us here in Colorado?
2: the colorado river is managed by a long line of agreements and laws that span the last century colorado is one of the headwater states for the river and just because it's upstream of these big reservoirs doesn't mean that it's uh that a lake mead that's declining isn't a problem uh, if these reservoirs keep dropping to a point where water can't be delivered downstream it would set off this multi-state litigation that would be messy and expensive and could shape water policy and politics in the West for a generation. So I think there's lots of state leaders that are motivated to avoid that future. And now it's all about how we learn how to live with less water and how we do that is still to be determined.
1: KUNC's Luke Runyon covers the Colorado River Basin and water issues at large across our region. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Henry. I'm going to go find some shade. Yeah, please do. Colorado lawmakers passed a series of bills during this year's session addressing how buildings contribute to the state's overall greenhouse gas emissions. One piece of legislation is meant to encourage Coloradans to stop burning natural gas and other fossil fuels to heat and cool their homes. KUNC's Ray Solomon has more.
0: Back in January, Governor Polis rolled out a plan, years in the making, for addressing the state's climate impact.
1: I'm very excited
3: to announce the Colorado greenhouse gas Pollution Reduction Roadmap.
0: The roadmap calls for eliminating 90% of Colorado's carbon emissions by 2050. This is by far the most ambitious and expansive planning document that Colorado has ever produced on climate change. Now, when you rank all sources of emissions in the state, buildings come in fourth. And yet...
1: Only one sector had to get 100% reduction in its emissions in that analysis, and that was the building sector.
0: Mike Henshin is a principal at the Rocky Mountain Institute, a clean energy nonprofit. He says buildings, both residential and commercial, account for about 10% of greenhouse gas emissions.
1: Probably natural gas, maybe propane, or in other parts of the country, oil. And this is probably your heating, your water heating, your cooking maybe a dryer.
0: For years, natural gas was promoted as a cleaner source than the fossil fuels powering electricity grids. Incentives still encourage homeowners to buy high-efficiency fuel-burning appliances. But as the state's electrical grid moves away from fossil fuels, Howard Geller says we have turned a corner. He's the senior policy advisor to the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project.
2: Wind and solar Other clean sources rapidly retiring the coal plants and and over time um, moving towards, you know, 90 percent or more of the electricity coming from renewable sources that don't have any emissions.
0: Utilities in the state have committed to reducing emissions by 80 percent or more by 2030. So the future of buildings, Geller says, lies in electricity. It's what people in his field call beneficial electrification. So what exactly does that look like?
3: We're talking about heat pumps, high efficiency heat pumps for space heating. We're also talking about heat pump water heaters.
0: Heat pumps run on electricity. They take heat out of the ground or out of the air. In other words, they don't generate heat. They just move it from one place to another. It's not a new technology, your air conditioner has always worked that way. In fact, one of the cool things about heat pumps is that despite the name, they are also air conditioners when you run them in reverse. Hi! Hi, how are you? Dan Schmidt and Lori Catalano of Fort Collins moved into Colorado's first zero emissions housing development about two years ago. We don't have natural gas here, and so everything is powered by electricity. Their heat comes from a geothermal heat pump, a unit that sources heat from deep underground. I don't think it changes how we live in this place at all, that it's electric, because everything is so functional. It doesn't require any extra thought. It works like any other home would. Alexa,
3: set the thermostat to 74 degrees.
0: Electric-only homes are viewed as an important part of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. They have a minimal impact on the end user. It seems like pretty low-hanging fruit, and yet, beneficial electrification has been slow to take off. This is one that's
1: been very difficult to tackle for years from a policy perspective.
0: Steve Fenberg is the Democratic majority leader in the state Senate. He says the decentralized nature of building ownership makes electrification trickier than, say, mandating decarbonization at the utility level.
1: This is different because this is getting individuals to make decisions in their spending and how they live. Um, And that's not an easy thing to do in a short amount of time.
0: And Fenberg says the biggest barrier might just be market inertia. People are not familiar with the technology. Neither are plumbers and contractors. It's why he sponsored a bill requiring public utilities to help their customers replace fuel burning appliances with electric ones. It's waiting to be signed by the governor.
1: You know, if you really take a step back, it is odd that we burn fuel in our homes. Like, it's like, that's like what, you know, Fred Flintstone would be doing. So a lot of this is about education and awareness.
0: And financial incentives and workforce training, which are also in the bill, since retrofitting existing buildings might be a hard nut to crack. You wouldn't know that this is geothermal, other than these two black pipes. But new all electric construction and housing developments, like the one where Dan Schmidt and Lori Catalano live, are a much lighter lift. And from a developer's perspective, they can make good business sense. Skipping the gas line infrastructure saves money and increases the land area available for development. And though these homes might be a little unusual beneath the surface, that's not exactly putting buyers off. So do you ever think about, do you ever walk around the neighborhood and just think about the fact that there's no gas lines under your feet? No. 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 Don't think about mm-hmm. it, until you brought it up
1: to have thought about it.
0: Ray Solomon, KUNC.
1: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Juneteenth is coming up on Saturday. The annual celebration marks the date some of the last enslaved people in this country, specifically in Texas, were freed nearly three years after President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. As it relates to Colorado, Denver holds one of the largest annual Juneteenth celebrations in the nation. In Boulder County, local organizations are holding a virtual event. And for the first time, both of these communities' local governments have issued proclamations recognizing the date. But today we're going to take you to the small town of Erie. Their local government issued a proclamation recognizing Juneteenth last year. And this weekend, the town will hold its first Juneteenth celebration. To discuss how the community got here, we're joined by Justin Brooks of Being Better Neighbors, a nonprofit that he and a few other Black Erie residents formed last year. We're also joined by Erie Mayor Jennifer Carroll. Both have lived in Erie for over a decade. Justin and Jennifer, welcome to you both. Thank you. Very nice to be here. So, Justin, let's start with you. How would you describe why Juneteenth is important to people who don't know much about the day?
3: I would say that um, in the history of our country, there's a lot of uh, historical events and and traumas that have occurred that are not widely known. And I think that as we look forward and celebrate the progress that's been made since those events um, and, and tragedies have happened, uh, it's important for us to educate one another on the differences in background and experiences that different cultural groups or ethnic groups have gone through uh, so that we can recognize that we've come very far, more progress is to be made, but there are certain atrocities and certain uh, injustices that we, we certainly don't want to have by sharing the story of how far we've come and from which, from which we came We can serve to make and build a better community.
1: What do you think about the celebration's importance specifically for smaller, very white communities like Erie? Glad you asked that, Henry. So,
3: you know, sharing this experience or sharing the historical uh, significance of the celebration that is Juneteenth, we felt was very important as the suburban landscape and the country really changes. Uh, As minorities or as BIPOC people migrate more into rural and suburban landscapes, uh, other folks who are there, I think it's important for them to celebrate along with the BIPOC population and have a, an understanding of uh, what Juneteenth means for the African-American community.
1: And Jennifer, same question to you.
4: you know, as mayor, for me, it's really important that our community is inclusive and welcoming to all people and that we celebrate our differences. Understanding um, the history of people that live in our community and our country is really important so that we can do better as a community and as neighbors moving forward, um, all with the hopes of being a more inclusive town.
1: Can you both describe the changes that you've seen and the events that have occurred in Erie immediately after and in the year since a Minneapolis police officer killed George Floyd?
4: How we saw that happen in Erie was a group of citizens came together and said, we are demanding change in our community, in our world, but let's start where we live. And that's where Being Better Neighbors came from. And so this group helped organize a march, which was in solidarity against racial injustice. We had over a thousand community members present, which is one of the largest events or gatherings I've ever been to in Erie. All of our board of trustees, all of the residents, staff members, our police chief, police officers. It was a a very unifying moment to signify at least we, Erie, are ready for change and we need it. And we're starting today. Since then, we've seen a lot of movement in different areas. The town's created a diversity, equity, and inclusion advisory board. We're right now hiring a diversity, equity, and inclusion manager to be the expert in helping improve DEI efforts in our town, um, along with being better neighbors, we posted different events like community conversations talking about racism and um, anti-bias, talking to your children about race series that the NAACP and Being Better Neighbors helped put on. So there, there are so many things happening right now that are all working toward that cause of to not just not be a racist, but to be anti-racist and really make a change for our children and that next generation.
3: Absolutely. And we as a town and a community really wanted to take a proactive approach in the wake of um, George Floyd's murder as well as Elijah McClain's. And those were two very raw w- wounds uh, at the time. And they're still very sensitive to many of us in the community who want to see progress made. And so what's different about Erie perhaps is you know the police department and the town step forward first and said, hey, we want to find a way to further the conversation, to improve the situation. And since then, we've been you know, working together to keep the dialogue going so that um, we don't, one, have tragedies like that in our town but also that we serve as a small piece of the country and furthering the progress toward having equal justice for everyone.
1: Well, Jennifer, I wanted to ask you, uh, why did those of you in local government think it was important to join the march and to issue a Juneteenth proclamation and to take some of these other steps you describe, when other local governments have been reluctant or apprehensive to dive in this way?
4: I'll speak for myself at least. As soon as I knew that we needed change in our community was making it apparent that they wanted and demanded change as well. There was never a question in my mind on should I participate or not? And I think that's how every board member felt as well is just, this is the right thing to do. We care about it. We need to show our residents that you know top down, we are all supporting this and we are hoping that they stand beside us and go through this journey with us. Um, as for proclamations, I, we were just focused on what do we want to do in Erie? It's more about what do we, the Erie residents, want out of our community moving forward. And as a town, we use proclamations to highlight items of significant impact to our community. Last year, it was very apparent that Juneteenth was a really important day that we needed to talk about um, and highlight and bring more attention to. Um, And that just, again, starts that process of making Erie a more inclusive place.
1: Erie, other communities in Colorado and across the country have made these proclamations after a decades-long push, a bill to make Juneteenth a national holiday, passed the U.S. Senate this week. What kind of power and impact do you think such official recognitions can have?
4: Having a proclamation at the local level, the state level, the federal level sets the stage for this being a day that people need to understand. You know, we need to know the importance of Juneteenth. We need to understand the history and we need to understand what we want to change moving forward to be a better town, state, country. And so I think it just highlights the importance of the day and the movement and the people that have been impacted by slavery and racism in our country. And hopefully it sets the stage for more communities to jump on board and say, this is important to us too, and here's how we're going to make our community better or our state better.
3: I'm honestly still processing the uh, the Senate passage of the, the bill to uh, make Juneteenth a federal holiday. I think we as a country seem to be at a place where we're open to the idea of marking a holiday, but we seem unwilling to really discuss you know, what caused it, you know, the historical significance and, in you know, overall positivity that has happened since then for the affected community um, of Juneteenth. So I would just uh, hope and pray that it would include an education as to why it's significant and that we really do use it as an opportunity to raise awareness and increase mutual understanding as opposed to just providing a performative measure.
1: I do wanna ask about the Juneteenth celebration happening this Saturday in Erie. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what people could could expect if they attend.
3: Absolutely, yeah, we're really excited about it, Henry. We've got um, uh, the Juneteenth celebration, which is gonna get kicked off at 1.30 p.m. at Cold Creek Park. Got food vendors, got performances that'll uh, come to us from DJ D Smooth. Kutendara, which is an African percussion uh, troupe that's going to perform. And then we have Logo Ligi, which is uh, an African uh, drumming circle that's going to be performing. We're really excited to be able to highlight um, BIPOC artists that will be having vendor booths there. We have an education booth where we'll be talking about uh, the significance of Juneteenth and spreading the Juneteenth story so people can understand um, both the significance and how they can amplify and participate in that celebration as well. We're probably expecting uh, anywhere from five to 7,000 people uh, at the park that weekend, and, and it's going to be amazing.
1: That was Justin Brooks of Erie-based nonprofit Being Better Neighbors and Erie Mayor Jennifer Carroll. You can find links to more information about Juneteenth celebrations this weekend in Denver, Boulder County, and Erie on our website, KUNC.org. That's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Adam Reyes, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.